views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Does the compass say we're on our course? I don't know. How do you wind this thing up? Sylvester, it's a compass. It always points north. Oh, yeah? Oh, well, it's no good. <laughs> we're going south. Why did you do that? Now, how are we going to get there? Don't worry. I'll work it out. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, December 14, 2017. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-winged. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. You know, it's amazing how many people are willing to throw away their political compasses, and still expect to stay on course towards something positive and better than what they left behind. Over the past few months, we've been witnessing a coming revelation of the true nature of what it means to be left and right. And we'll be getting to that as soon as I remind you, one and all, that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and of course, all of our past broadcasts. Well, our story this week again begins with the travails and tribulations and the trials and tribulations of none other than Wilfrid Laurier University's Lindsay Shepard, whom we've covered quite extensively on the show in the past. By now, most of you have probably heard about the revelation by Christy Blatchford in the National Post on December 6th that the whole issue at Wilfrid Laurier University's fact-finding investigation of the Lindsay Shepard affair has been discovered to be not about free speech, but about Lindsay Shepard herself. And the headline reads, Ominous signs at Lindsay Shepard's job, not free speech is target of Laurier Probe. Howard Levitt, the well-known Toronto employment lawyer who represents Shepard Pro Bono, wrote Rob Senta, the lawyer hired to conduct the investigation, last weekend, asking for the details of the complaint or complaints made against her. In reply, Senta told him, I do not believe there is a document that contains a complaint made about Ms. Shepard, nor is there anything I would describe as a formal complaint under any Wilfrid Laurier University policy. Anyway, make a long story short, it appears that the supposed complaint that was filed against Lindsay Shepard does not even exist. <laughs> Are you surprised? That's just a part of the story. Now here's another reaction to that whole story. And what this points out is the attitude of the left towards what has been happening at Laurier University. So on the left front, we can cite December 2nd, 2017, London Free Press commentary by Robin Baranyai over which reads the headline, Laurier Free Speech Drama, A Win for White Nationalists. Can you believe it? What nationalism possibly has to do with skin color is something that only racists can rationalize, or people who never understood history. But being a nationalist of any color other than white is, of course, to mentalities like that displayed by Robin Baranya, quite okay. 
What's not okay is being white. Quote, Unfortunately, proponents of the political correctness is killing free speech narrative have a juicy bone they can trot out again and again. One of these voices is a passive participant in the saga, but one of its biggest beneficiaries, Professor Jordan Peterson, has built a niche for himself as a pronoun contrarian. The professor still has a following, to be sure, but the more people were exposed to his rants against social justice and a neo-Marxist agenda, the more he receded to the margins. The incident at Laurier will long be cited as an example of political correctness running roughshod over the free exchange of ideas, she writes. In the U.S., the perception that controversial speakers are being silenced on university campuses is being deployed as a strategy to confer legitimacy on white nationalism. So you see all those things we've been seeing in the news, that's just our perception. It's not, it's not really happening. And she writes, The perverse result is that free speech itself, as a rallying cry, is now emerging as a dog whistle for embattled white nationalism. There's a lesson in this for Canadian universities. Stifling intolerant voices doesn't make them disappear. There should be no doubt anti-discrimination policies must remain important to ensure trans students and other minorities can learn in a safe and respectful environment, end quote. Well, this is so ridiculous that it's difficult to restrain myself from simply replying to such drivel, you know, with, with nothing but expletives that I'd have to delete anyway. How can anyone possibly associate white nationalism in the United States with discrimination against trans students in a Canadian university, neither of which are real? But the real issue is this. Civilization's major problem is the left. And all those who identify as being on the left, which is what we just heard from this commentary. Like it or not, the left represents what is essentially evil, just by definition. So don't, don't feel bad if you define on the, on the left, because that's what we're going to be hearing from people who define themselves on the left today. But it always has been. It's the process of coming to the realization of this that is very painful for a lot of people. You know, evil is predicated by the desire of something for nothing, however that might manifest itself. Meanwhile, on Laurier's leftist front, as we learned from two separate National Post editorials, dated November 29 and December 6, we discover that under the heading that, quote, language games still in play at university, the left is fighting back against reason, justice, free speech, and objectivity, and everything that is right, whether as a political label or whether in the generic sense. Quote, a much larger group of professors mostly from the social sciences, have published their own call for action, asking the school to go further down the rabbit hole. They say students and faculty are now being subjected to threats of violence, harassment, intimidation, and our campuses have become unsafe. If anybody at WLU is being assaulted and threatened with assault, that's a serious matter, they write. They should call the police and seek justice. But progressives on campus seem to consider mere words as a form of violence. And in the second editorial, referring to this so-called violence, which they titled, Free Speech Policy is Total Gobbledygook, the commentary notes that WLU has a gendered and sexual violence policy introduced in the wake of Ontario's Bill 132 passed last year that required universities to develop just such a policy. 
The WLU policy, though, goes much further than the law compels. The GSVP policy defines this sort of forbidden violence as, quote, an act or actions that reinforce gender inequalities resulting in physical, sexual, emotional, economic, or mental harm. Let's cut to the chase, they say. This is nothing but activist gobbledygook. This definition is a total crock, and any credible institute should be embarrassed to enshrine something like this. Instead, they should be backing something like the Chicago Principles, which universities are signing onto as a way to show their commitment to intellectual diversity and free speech. These principles, first ratified by the University of Chicago in 2014, hold it is not the proper role of the university to attempt to shield individuals from ideas and opinions they find unwelcome, disagreeable, or even deeply offensive, end quote. And deeply offended is exactly how I feel about almost everything that is uttered by the left. Because it's all irrational. And irrationality is just another word for evil. We must all learn to understand this and to come to a proper understanding of what is truly left and right. I mean, it's more important than all of the symptoms generated by the left combined because until you get that, until you, without such an understanding, there's no hope for freedom, for rationality, for virtue, or for the good because we won't know where the hell we're going. Now, coming up next, we'll be listening into two audio excer- excerpts from two different interviews featuring Lindsay Shepard herself in conversation with Dave Rubin from the December 1 Rubin Report on this side of the bumper and on the other side of the bumper in conversation with Stephen Crowder from episode 267 of Louder with Crowder. I recommend you check out her full interviews with each of those gentlemen online. Now, what the two interview excerpts share in common is that I have selected that portion of their discussions specifically focused on the parts of the conversations dealing with the issues of left and right. What what would you say your general political beliefs are? I I don't need to know every specific everything, but before this, because now if if people Google you, I mean, they're going to just see all this horrible stuff. So what what were your beliefs before this? Um, I consider myself left-leaning, and I kind of still do, but also... I've also been tempted by the idea of like maybe I should just like join the right. They're being so welcoming to me. Yeah, <laughs> like, I should just well, join you, the right. <laughs> but but what do you make of that? I mean, it's kind of funny. I mean, I can see it. You like it's kind of funny. But I, to me, this is like you're sort of having your what everyone calls the red pill moment, where it's right. like the rubber's meeting the road with your life right now. Mm. You know, and I've seen this happen so many times, and I've seen it happen to myself, where it's like, man, I mean, let's put it this way: Are you getting any backing from people on the left? Um. Yeah, some. So some private backing and things like that. But I mean, yeah. your public defenders basically have all been, you know, these alt-right. It's, it's sometimes it's hard to tell, right? And it's, it's become so muddied because, um, yeah, if leftism and maybe, you know, yeah, leftism is about silencing and suppressing and, and censorship, then like, no, I don't want to be associated yeah. with those values. W- what does leftism mean to you? Now, like when you say I consider myself mostly on the right, uh, uh, sorry, on the left. On the left, yeah. So, like, for example, like my principal value is like protecting the environment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I believe in, I like Canada's healthcare system, so like socialized medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I consider myself a feminist too. 
And so, you know, it's, it's interesting that I can be in agreement with all those things, but they still think I'm a terrible person. Yeah. So. <laughs> Where does the feminism piece fit into this? Because I'm going to guess that the feminist community, uh, the general feminist community, ain't going to be having a lot of what you're serving up these days. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, I, I kind of almost understand some resentment to feminism now. Um, before, I thought, like, yeah, those people just don't get it. But now I'm kind of seeing why there's resistance towards feminism, and it's because of this kind of censorship stuff, and it's because of, you know, making males out to be, like, devious people. You know, that's just not helpful. That's not productive for society. So, you know, that's something that I've, I've come to realize now, is kind of understanding where that resistance comes from. Yeah. So you're sort of going through it right now, like you're kind of really challenging all of your beliefs. Yeah. yeah. I mean, through this, I've found myself to be profoundly disappointed with the left. And I almost feel like I'm being kicked out from the left side of the spectrum. So it's nice to, to know that there's still reasonable people and, you know, people who, who want to talk about these issues and won't be, um, you know, won't label people who want to talk about them. Well, let me ask you this. That's interesting to me. We just had uh, uh, Donald Aguirre, from, uh, founder of Indivisible Utah, who posted our Antifa video there and, and was just, again, just raked over the coals for it. You've just sort of identified as, as left more. So, Lindsay, I don't want to put words in your mouth or let's kind of use the spectrum. We'll get crap no matter what we say. If we say liberal, people say, why don't you say left? If we say left, but certainly not traditional conservative. Um, it, do, do you find yourself becoming less uh, I guess of a leftist or less liberal uh, or your political views changing or at least a distrust going, uh, growing when you see what's unfolded here? Like, was this something you were always aware of? Obviously, you recorded it. Or is it something that now your eyes have been opened that the left does this to both the right and anyone who doesn't step in line for them? Um, I definitely didn't know it was this bad. And especially because so much of the hate and the immature comments that I'm getting are coming from PhD students. And that's what I find the scariest thing is because those people are going to become professors. Um, so I'm kind of learning how bad it is. But at the same time, I don't really think I'm changing. I think it's the, the uh, political spectrum is maybe being rewritten um, like as we speak. How would you like to see this unfold? Or how do you maybe picturing it unfold, even if, if it's harrowing? Um, I would like leftists or liberals to return to being more reasonable and stop their reactionary labeling and stop their, you know, racist, homophobe, transphobe, um, white privilege, white tears, shaming, fat shaming, you know, like all those things. Yeah. Um, it just shuts down conversation. Um, and especially in a university, which is how all this started for me, is you need to be able to tackle anything. Um, and that's how people learn. So, you know, they're, they're starting to take, take control of not starting to take control. I mean, they're in control of university art programs. Damning statements, particularly considering that it's coming from someone working within a university environment. Although I realize he could have used the term in a couple of different senses, I really like the term used by Dave Rubin when he cited the red pill moment, which couldn't be a more apt color for a pill of the left. 
and for a way of describing that moment when one realizes that the red pill is poison. But consider the importance of the labels left and right to anyone who associates with them. After dealing with the whole issue of free speech on campus, gender issues, and all the other related employment issues and education standards and all that stuff, the ultimate resolution to these problems, as seen by Lindsay, as being, quote, I would like leftists and liberals to return to be more reasonable and stop their reactionary labeling, end quote. Now, why would that be her solution? How would that solve anything? I'm not too sure she had time to have thought that through, because what she's really saying is that she would like to continue being seen herself on the left, which she still identifies, quite falsely, as a positive force for the environment, health care, and for women. You know, how, how does she suppose the environment, health care, and women are faring in Venezuela? Or in China these days, or in North Korea. You know, I could keep going on. These are all monuments to the ideologies of the left. Quote, if leftism is about silencing and censorship, I want no part, end quote. Yes, Lindsay, leftism is, and always was, about silencing and censorship. Just ask the Nazis. Ask the Chinese. Ask the North Koreans. We can go through the list again. Interesting comment she makes when she says, Through this, I found myself profoundly disappointed with the left. I almost feel like I'm being kicked out of the left side of the spectrum. Well, actually, what's really happening is that Lindsay is beginning to realize that she's not a part of the left side of the spectrum. By the way, let's remember there's no spectrum or middle of the road. There's only polarities here, but we'll deal with that in other times. Once the left understands that Lindsay is not one of them, they will want to do anything they can to get rid of her for the very reasons that our guest Paul McKeever on last week's show cited. It only takes one person to expose the truth, since truth is always on the side of reality. The lie only works if we all agree. Remember, that's what Paul said. And a single voice can expose the truth. And that's why Robert Vaughn's story on the show last week about how when he was education trustee, he often was the only person voting in opposition to every one of the other trustees who were on the left. And still, they were insistent that Robert should be voting their way for the sake of unanimity and having a united voice. This is the same drivel I'm hearing nowadays coming out of our city council as well. And again, this boils down to primacy of consciousness versus the primacy of existence. Left, right. Left, primacy of consciousness. Right, primacy of existence. This is the essential distinction. And you can hear in everything that those who identify with the left say and tell us. And wishing does not make it so. I almost understand the resentment towards feminism now, says Lindsay, making males out to be devious people, not helpful or productive to society. So when Lindsay says, I would like leftists and liberals to return to be more reasonable and stop their reactionary labeling, she's trying to resolve a problem via a contradiction in terms, and her problem is one of definitions. She's asking people who, by their philosophy and intent, want to silence and censor. 
yet she wants them to be more reasonable. But these are not positions that can be made reasonable. Feminists like our own local Megan Walker determined to portray all men as devious potential rapists cannot hold such a position and remain quote-unquote reasonable. Now you can hear it's beginning to dawn on Lindsay. She described herself as quote, left-leaning, and I kind of still do, but lately I've been entertaining the idea that maybe I should just join the right. Well, there's nothing to join, Lindsay. You're already there. You just don't know it because you didn't have a working compass, and you are not alone. Coming up next, on the other side of the bumper, when we return, we'll be hearing from a fellow named Brendan O'Neill who appeared on two separate interviews on the Rubin Report, and I'll talk more about that when we return. But on this side of the bumper, you know, Lindsay Shepard hit the nail right on the head when she emphasized that the leftists and liberals are not just starting to take control, they are in control of our university programs. And to confirm and speak to that astute observation on her part, we're about to hear from another speaker, who I'm embarrassed to say I hadn't heard of till last week or so, And this was published on October 7th, 2017, and it is Jonathan David Haidt, H-A-I-D-T, who's an American social psychologist and professor of ethical leadership at the New York University's Stern School of Business. His academic specialization is the psychology of morality and the moral emotions. Haidt is the author of two books, The Happiness Hypothesis, Finding Modern Truth in Ancient Wisdom, and The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, which became a New York Times bestseller. He was named one of the top global thinkers by Foreign Policy magazine and one of the top world thinkers by Prospect magazine. This is data that should scare the hell out of you. This is data that you might not know. I didn't know it until two years ago. This is data from uh, Higher Education Research Institute. This is nationally representative data of uh, professors at American universities. As late as the mid-1990s, the left-to-right ratio was only two to one. So, and this is all departments. This includes the agriculture school, the dental school, everything. So two to one, left-to-right. Um, But just 15 years later, it had changed to five to one. Five to one. And again, this includes all the professional schools. If you focus on the core areas of the humanities and social sciences, which is where most of the concern is on our panel and the previous panel, what do you find? Well, I can show you the data from my field, psychology, and it's the same story in the others. Uh, So I published a paper with some colleagues uh, two years ago on how the uh, homogeneity damages our research. We put together all the research we could find. What you see is that in 1960, there was a study that looked at who professors of psychology voted for, and four to one, they went for Kennedy. Now, then they were asked to recall, who did you vote for previously? And as you see, roughly two to one, they went for the Democrat, right? So psychologists have always leaned left politically. So as late as 1996, psychologists were only four to one, left to right, professors of psychology, but again, Between the mid-90s and 2010, everything changes, and the numbers go up and up and up, and just last week or two weeks ago, we got a new data point from Langbert et al., 17 to one. 17 to one, and I know the one guy. He's a really nice guy. Okay, 
So this is happening in, throughout the humanities and social sciences, and even to some extent in the sciences now. This has many, many profound and threatening implications for students and for faculty. For students, what this means is that orthodox views become strongly held but weakly supported. They actually can't even justify the beliefs they hold so passionately because they've never been challenged. And what that means is that if anybody comes close to challenging, it's very threatening. A phrase they use is, you are invalidating my existence. If you challenge a proposition that I hold dear, you are invalidating my existence. So students are afraid to do so, and I, I hear all over the place, students say it's kind of boring in seminar classes, no one will disagree. And many students become intellectually fragile from the lack of challenge, and that's why when a, when a controversial speaker comes to campus, they don't just not go, they don't argue back, they have to come together to get the, student, the speaker banned, or they do a protest to drown him or her out. For faculty, of course, this has many implications, misallocation of effort, loss of rigor in our thinking, fear of dissent, and recently, just the last two or three years, fear of our students. One of the reasons the comment was made that faculty lack courage, that's absolutely true. Now we're actually quite afraid of our students because it's so easy for them. We're really busy, and at the drop of a hat, if, any, if we offend anyone in the class, it could be months of hearings, they can go right to the Equal Opportunity Commission. It's a nightmare, and so we're all afraid of our students. The crisis we face at the moment is incredibly serious and that crisis is a, a very serious crisis of freedom and a crisis of progress and a crisis of humanism. That's the problem we face at the moment. We, fa we live in a modern society which has lost faith in itself, a modern society which has lost faith in its founding values, which are individual, if you look at the founding values of modern society, going back 400, 300 years or whatever it is. Um, individual autonomy, freedom of speech, the right of people to pursue happiness, to live independently, to make choices for themselves, the right to trade, all those things which were incredibly radical ideas when they first came about and remain radical ideas now, in fact, as anyone who stands up for freedom of speech or due process or free trade will soon discover they are still incredibly dangerous, controversial ideas, even yeah. today. The pursuit of happiness. The pursuit what of happiness. a radical idea. Incredibly radical Go idea. Go live your life. And you know what I love about the phrase, the pursuit of happiness, is that it implies that you have to find the happiness for yourself. And you know, we have a lot of pro-happiness movements at the moment. In fact, in Europe, it's now a government institution to increase happiness levels in society. And in fact, the United Nations... Wait, what is that? Yeah, it's, There's it's, an office of happiness? It's, it's I mean, what insane. are they doing over there? Yeah, in, in Britain, we have happiness advisors to the government. <laughs> and um, the United Nations now does this happiness index, where yeah. it measures the, oh, right, happiness, I've seen this. Right, the happiness of individual nations and how it might be increased, which actually brings to mind Huxley's Brave New World. Because in Brave New World, the terrifying authoritarian state is obsessed with making people happy yeah. because it thinks it can just manage people's emotions or tweak people's emotions and, and increase their joy of life. But the great thing about the phrase, the right to pursue happiness, is that it says, we trust you and we're going to leave you to carve out your path in life for yourself and to discover what makes you happy, to use your autonomy and your choice and your freedom and your interaction with other people to discover happiness. 
You are listening to Just Right Broadcasting Around the World and Online. Thank you to our financial supporters who make it possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample some of our timeless past broadcasts, all archived, not just for your listening enjoyment and convenience, but also as a record of our dedication, consistency, and principled approach to the discussion of all things just right about freedom and capitalism. Now, we just heard from the October 7th presentation by Jonathan Haidt referring to a campus crisis in which he points out how the left-to-right ratio on university campuses was 2 to 1 back in the 90s, jumped to 5 to 1 15 years later, and is today 17 to 1. And he knows the one guy. (laughs) I think I know him too. But if these are the trends on campus, what are the trends in society at large? Our elected governments at all levels are pretty much 100% made up of leftists. When he was trustee, Robert Vaughn was the only person on the school board who, who would have been described on the right. So, you know, that this trend has been around for a while. Now, Brendan O'Neill, on this side of the bumper, who we heard from, described a crisis of freedom and progress and humanism. And he speaks of a modern society which has lost faith in itself and its values. To hear Brendan O'Neill speak, the last thing you associate with his ideas is the left. His values appear to be, at least on the surface, just right. Yet he sees himself as a person on the left, an association that we will hear him explain at length in but a few moments, and I want to go down that path because this is a very important conversation coming up. One that I think many people will strongly identify with in terms of the political redefinitions of left and right as they are perceived by most people on the left. Because the voices we're hearing today come from people who mostly see themselves on the left. Now, O'Neill describes himself as a Marxist libertarian. And admittedly, saying that he uses the labels sort of to get your attention. And remember, as we distinguished earlier, that old and demonstrably incorrect notion of left and right, where you got communism on the left and fascism on the right, was the only compass by which everyone was steering. So what we're about to listen into is an edited portion of two much longer interviews, but edited to that part of their conversation where the topic was about where they saw themselves in terms of left and right. So get ready for a fun ride as we listen into the Rubin Report with Brendan O'Neill wrestling with his own Lindsay Shepard experience, finding himself alienated by the left of which he saw himself a part. You self-identify as a Marxist libertarian. I tried to work this one through in my brain for a little bit. I've heard some strange labels. I've heard some (laughs) words that don't quite make sense next to each other. I'm struggling. I'm struggling to figure out how this makes sense. Help me. Uh, uh, Well, partly I use that phrase because it confuses people. And I think it's good to confuse people or to make them think, you mm-hmm. know, how can this be possible? How can these two terms go together? And that's what people say and that's what people start to think about. But the way I see it, you know, with Marxism and, and the radical left, I'm like people are with rock bands. I always say I prefer the early stuff, <laughs> you know, before they went rubbish and awful. Yeah. And that's how I am with the left. 
I like the early stuff. If you go right back to where the word the left comes from, which is on the, the French Revolutionary National Assembly, the people who sat on the left side of that National Assembly in the late 1700s, that's why they're called the left. Those people were incredibly pro-reason, pro-liberty, that's what they were fighting for, pro-autonomy, that's what drove them. And mm -hmm. that's what drove the left, including the radical left, for at least six or seven decades after that, right through to Marx and Engels and the kind of mid-1800s writers and radicals who published manifestos and so on. They were driven by a desire for greater liberty in life. And people forget that now because, of course, we had the horrors of Stalinism. Mm -hmm. The 20th century left is, generally speaking, a disaster. From Stalinism right through to the left's support of the welfare state and its growing bureaucracy towards the left we have now, which is indistinguishable, uh, unrecognizable, rather, from the left that existed 150 or 200 years ago. When Marx was in his 20s, he wrote the best defenses of press freedom you will ever read. The Prussian authorities were seeking to clamp down on the free press, and Marx wrote these wonderful essays saying, look, of course the press is rubbish and tells lies and veers to the right and can be extreme, but it must, its liberty must always be defended. Um, if you read the Communist Manifesto, which I recommend to all your viewers, they mm -hmm. must read the Communist Manifesto, mm -hmm. the first nine or ten pages are devoted to praising the capitalist class, praising them for uh, the wonders of what they created, the new uh, system of production they brought in. Cre uh, Marx and Engels use incredibly un-PC language to talk about the smashing down of backward cultures and the spread of free trade and capitalist trade into all areas of the world and the way it creates the opportunity for a universal culture and more dynamism and more liberty and more choice. So they spend a long time praising the developments that had been brought about. It's and, hard and to believe, actually. I don't, think, I, I, don't, I don't think I've read it really since college. It's, yeah, so, it's, yeah, it's yeah. hard to believe, and it's always worth reminding people of that because the idea, because the problem we face today is that we have a left that has utterly forgotten its political origins, and its political origins boiled down to their essence was how can we make mankind even freer than the capitalist era had already made it. So there was a recognition that under capitalism we had greater freedom and choice than we did under any system before that. Right, that's interesting because there seems to be no recognition no. now. Now it's like that is the evil thing. That's right. Which is always coming from people that live in actually the freest societies that's right. on earth, ironically. That, but you know the problem with anti-capitalism today is that it's incredibly, it hates all the things about capitalism that the early Marxists actually quite liked, which is international trade, the international of trade, even the consumer society. In the Grundis, Marx wrote about the wonders of advertising and, and he has this wonderful passage where he talks about how great it is that capitalists are always using chatter and trying to tempt us towards buying their products. He said that's one of the good civilizing things about capitalist society. And of course, uh, economic growth, the fact that people can buy more stuff, those things were, th were the aspects of capitalism that the early radicals actually liked but they didn't think it was enough. Mm -hmm. And it's those things that the modern-day anti-capitalists hate, because what anti-capitalists... While they do it from their iPhones. While they do it. They, yeah. they say how much they hate it on their iPhones. Yeah. But they, they actually... It's not so much capitalism they hate as mankind's ambitions and his, um, his, you know, his interference with nature or his arrogance. 
this kind of, it's, it's really human hubris, as they see it, that they are agitated by, not capitalism itself. So it's a very backward reactionary movement, not at all like the early leftists. Yeah, and that's why whatever, whatever it is that we are, whatever that is, yeah. that thing, and we, I don't even know all your political beliefs on everything, but I'm sure we have some disagreements on that, but whatever it is that we basically are is becoming the widest tent. Because I see what hap what's happening right now, and it's like we're taking in people all over the yes. map that are just going, I just want to live free. But you know, it. this is the exciting thing about the period we live in. This is where I am optimistic, and I'm generally very optimistic about where politics is going, even though it goes up and down and up and down. Um, you know, I, I still consider myself a little bit of a Trotskyist. Right now, and the reason when I say this to right-wing friends of mine and and kind of classical liberal friends of mine, they look at me in absolute horror, and then I say to them, "Look, Trotsky was once asked, what does it mean to be a radical leftist?" And he said, "It means you want to increase the power of man over nature, and decrease the power of man over man." Now, I would live and die by that. Yeah, answer. that's pretty good. That is I'll, what I'm with I you. want. Right. I want to increase our control of nature so that we understand it better and we use it better in order to end poverty and so on, in, in, it's particularly in the third world. And I want to decrease the power of man over man. Fewer laws, fewer regulations, no censorship, no bureaucracy or, or far less bureaucracy. So when I say that to classical liberals and, and right-wing friends of mine, they, they get it instantly. Yeah. But what's really exciting about today is that I actually think the new alliances that are forming are incredibly interesting. So I often find I have far more in common, even with people on the alt-right, mm -hmm. or certainly with people on the kind of classical liberal right or the free market right, mm -hmm. than I do with people who today describe themselves as left-wing. I have more in common with the religious people in Europe who are currently defending freedom of speech yeah. far better than some atheists are because um, religious speech is under attack in Europe. So it's the new alliances that I find incredibly interesting and uh, exciting. And, and, and so I think a new dividing line is opening up. And it's no longer the dividing line between where do you stand on the market or are you left wing or right wing. It's increasingly a dividing line over do you trust ordinary people to run their own lives? And that sounds like a simple question, but actually it cuts to the heart of yep. everything. Because if you do trust ordinary people to run their own lives, you will be interested in diminishing government interference, defending free speech in all instances, because you think people can make up their own minds, and uh, diminishing uh, uh, bureaucracy. If you don't trust ordinary people, and tragically the left doesn't anymore, you will be in favor of growing the welfare state growing environmental controls, restricting uh, the expansion of production and growth and everything else, and censoring speech. So the key dividing line I, I think now is, do you trust people, yes or no? The argument for freedom is being colonized by people on the right who I don't think are always 100% convincing in their defense of freedom. And the thing that particularly worries me now is the left's abandonment of the ideal of freedom. I think that's actually the real crisis we face in Western societies now, which is that the left and so-called liberals, and you know, the, the word liberal is about the word liberty, yeah. are turning their backs on liberty. That's a real problem. Yeah, okay, so I, I really wanna dive deep into this one because everyone watching this, at least my 
audience knows that, th I mean, this is where I've spent most of my time. Mm. You know, I came from the progressive world. I wanted to fix the left. Subsequently, two years later, after endlessly talking about this, I did a video with PragerU, uh, which they titled Why I Left the Left, because I've come to the position that liberalism in the classical sense, the John Stuart Mill sense, no longer has anything to do with modern leftism. Yeah. So l let's really go deep on yeah. this. So first off, let's start with why are you, let's start with the roots of why liberalism should be connected to the left. Let's just start there. Well, the, the, the way I put it is that I didn't leave the left. The left left me mm -hmm. um, because the left abandoned everything that it used to represent. And the way I see political correctness, which is this kind of rehabilitation of the racial imagination, so everyone is now black and white or man and woman, and this um, constant divisiveness and shoving people back into biological boxes from which they spent 200 years trying to escape. Um, or it's illiberalism, so it doesn't want you to be um, controversial or daring or contrarian, it wants everything to be sedate. Um, or even um, the modern PC people's uh, agitation with things like economic growth or uh, exploring nature or even, dare I say it, exploiting nature for the good of mankind. On all that, those, that one can get you into right, extra trouble. Yeah. I mean, that's super controversial. Yeah. All those things suggest to me that the, the PC culture, you know, people call it left. In my mind, it runs counter to everything the left used to stand for. I think it is reactionary. I think if anything it's right wing. I happen to think left and right aren't particularly useful the, categories now, but it's certainly more right wing than it is left wing. Do, do you my, remember a moment when it happened? Because that's what a lot of people ask me. They ask me when, when my specific wake up was or when your specific wake up was. But do you think there was a, a cultural or political moment that really was the, the hammer that kind of whacked it and then started to go in the wrong way? I think it's been a long standing process. I think it's been growing for a long time. I think you could even trace it back to the 60s when the left shifts from being interested in economic issues and the working class towards being interested in you know the new left interested in cultural issues and the problem of advertising and consumerism and so on and that shift from being interested in production how are things produced and who owns them towards being obsessed with consumerism mm -hmm. why are we always pressured to buy things and so on and that was a very important shift to, from economy and power towards issues of culture. Mm -hmm. And then that grows through the 70s and the 80s and it becomes the dominant theme of the left. And, you know, the way I see it is, if I look back, because I still call myself a Marxist libertarian, I partly do it just to... We're going to unpack I that I partly one. do it just to annoy people because <laughs> no one understands what it means. Yeah. Uh, even I don't understand what it yeah. means. But I always considered the left to be universal, um, pro-growth, that was one of the most important parts of the left, and interested in autonomy, interested in pushing away all the priests and princes and, and bureaucrats who wanted to tell ordinary people how to live, and trusted ordinary people more than experts. That's how I saw the left. Now I see a left, a so-called left, that has abandoned those three things. So it's uh, ditched universalism in favor of the rabbit hole of identity politics and the rabbit hole of biological difference or historical difference. It's ditched the argument for economic growth in favor of the cult of environmentalism and this idea that every single thing we do to the planet is destructive and maybe we should rein in growth and mm -hmm. have less growth. And it's ditched the argument for autonomy and, and the shoving aside of the bureau bureaucrats who want to govern ordinary people's lives in favor of 
sacralizing expertise and celebrating expertise and celebrating the state mm -hmm. and the role of the state in governing or assisting poor people who apparently can't cope on their own. So if those are the three spheres of left-wing politics, and I think they are, which is universalism, economic growth in order to liberate people from poverty, and the idea that people can probably run their own lives and will make a better fist of it than government would. I think that's what the left used to be about. Yeah. Going back 100 years, 150 years, they've ditched all of that and are now very pro-state, pro-identity, pro-division, and um, pro-planet over pro-growth. That is what worries me. So that's why I say I didn't leave the left. I still consider myself a man of the radical left. Yeah. It's the left that has drifted off into a whole new territory. You know, I still call myself left-wing, but I'm constantly conscious of the fact that to most people out there, perfectly understandably, they think that means I'm on the wrong side. So maybe yeah. I'm fighting a losing battle because yeah. I'm well, trying to recover a sense of what the left used to be. About. Yeah, I completely hear you, brother. <laughs> So some quick comments and observation about what we just heard Brendan O'Neill say on the Rubin Report of November 29. And I noticed in his terminology, he's still speaking in very leftist terms, even when he relates to what he sees as the virtues of the left. You know, he talks about the capitalist class. He doesn't talk about capitalism. The capitalist class. There's no such class. There's no such thing. And as soon as you get into class talking, you're already way over on the left, and you've got nothing in common with the right or with capitalism or any of those values that he is expressing. Here is the Achilles heel of the arguments from the left, even the well-intentioned left. Quote, The left has forgotten its political origins. How can we make mankind even freer than the capitalist era had already made it? Well, the answer is you can't. Let me ask you another question. How can you make a pregnant woman more pregnant? If you're already free, you can't get more free. If you're already dead, you can't be more dead. If you're already alive, you can't be more alive. It, these are digital things. You can't <laughs> have any gradient between. It's like left and right. But a really profound and accurate statement that was made by Brendan O'Neill is this. It's not so much capitalism that the left hates as it is mankind's ambitions that they hate. That is so true because if each individual exercises his freedom to pursue his, his or her own ambitions, well, inequality is the instant result because nobody has the same types of ambitions, talents, desires, objectives in life. And when he quoted Trotsky, who ex once explained that, quote, the goal of being a leftist was to increase the power of man over nature and to decrease the power of man over man. That's well expressed, but this guy was the last guy who should be expressing it. Ultimately, his conclusion is that it's not about left and right, but about trusting people to run their own lives or not. But the system that places trust in people to run their own lives is freedom and capitalism. There is no other. And once we justify the use of coercion or force for like social purposes or economic purposes rather than for the purposes of justice and defense of the realm, then all hopes of trusting anyone are out the window. 
The argument for freedom is being colonized by people on the right, argues Brandon O'Neill, who is correct in saying that, but it's not being colonized by them. They've always been there although he says they're not all the best spokesmen. Well, the poor spokesmen for freedom who are, quote, on the right, are those who either are simply not competent at speaking for the right, or who are actually on the left, like so many people who call themselves conservatives, like progressive conservatives, who are pretty well as progressive and as left as anybody you can get on the left. And he points out how left and right wing are not particularly useful attributes right now, well, not if they're incorrectly defined, not when they both mean the same thing. Of course they're not useful. If right and left both mean left, what use are they? I didn't leave the left. The left drifted off to a whole new territory, he says. Maybe I'm trying to fight a losing battle, trying to recover what the left used to be. Well, talk about the echo of Lindsay Shepard. She wants to reform the left, too. She wants to make them think right. <laughs> Don't, you see the contradiction in that and where they're going with it? You know, I had the same problem with being labeled when I first became active in politics. And we did everything we could to avoid left and right labeling because we couldn't fit Freedom Party, the party with which I'm active, into those non-working left and right label categories. We didn't fit on there. There was no room for freedom on the old left and right scale, as I pointed out before. And it's not in the middle. There is no middle. Left and right. Fascism on the right and, and communism on the left. That's a no-choice political spectrum, if you want to call it that. Brendan O'Neill is making the classic error about the left, judging it by its intentions and promises, and never judging it by the means of how it will accomplish those things. Never judging whether the left means the same thing as the right when it uses the word freedom, for example, because it does not. The freedom that the left speaks of is not the one that was described by Brendan O'Neill. It's a freedom from individual responsibility. That's how they want to expand and make you more free than you were under capitalism. But true freedom is indivisible from individual responsibility. You can't separate the two. You don't get freedom without responsibility. Individual. And you can't make it better or more free or give you more responsibility or any of those things. These are conditions that exist or do not. And unless freedom is being applied to individuals only, it has no meaning in this context. Leftist freedoms are all about group freedoms, which is a contradiction in terms. Groups cannot and do not possess rights despite what governments try to do. Only individuals within groups are capable of possessing rights. Remember, ends and means are always the same in politics. If you have a means of using force all the time, that's going to be your end. If the government is predicated on the use of force and forcing its citizens into places where they don't want to go, that's going to be the end too. There, there, there is no end. There is no such thing. That's why freedom is both the ends and means to mankind's survival. Freedom is the condition you want. It's the means and it's also the end. And once you're there, you can't be more free. Inequality, economic inequality, inequality of, of kind is a virtue in any free society. You don't want equality. You want equality before and under the law with respect to rights. But that is it. And I have yet to witness any non-capitalist system that has ever, quote-unquote, distributed wealth 
equally or justly to anyone. Where does that happen? It's funny, you know, both Ayn Rand and Isabel Patterson commented that the best that various socialist systems ever try to promise is but a pale shadow of what capitalism is already delivering. It's just like Brendan O'Neill was talking about. We're going to make you more free. No, you can't make me more free. You can't, you can't even get to the free part. Let you get to less free. But you see, what the left wants to do to make it better is to do all of these things that capitalism does without effort. Getting something for nothing. And that's the left's idea of freedom. You know, left and right represent diametrically opposed ways of thinking about reality and reason. Pragmatically dealing with one issue at a time in a moral vacuum is no way to establish any coherent direction, meaning that the incoherence will continually drift leftward. This has been the downfall of conservatism. It has fallen prey to economics and pragmatism and abandoned principle, even its own, which is kind of difficult to define since even conservative principles have changed or been in conflict with each other over the years. I remember Sunday shopping in Ontario. That was when I discovered that Ontario's conservatives, at least, were in favor of theocracy on that issue, and they were perfectly willing to put people in jail for operating a business on a day that is considered sacred by their religious beliefs. You know, it's Freedom Party that brought Sunday shopping to the province of Ontario, but how many people know that? It was, it was campaigns. And I find it most interesting. Listen to this that in the country of Poland right now, who has wide open Sunday shopping, they're phasing it out, apparently for religious reasons, but it's being done by the unions and other leftist groups. That means that even relative to where Poland is today, on this issue, the country will be moving leftward again, which is never a good direction. It will always do more harm than good, with the good being defined only by those who are forcing their idea of good on the others. According to this story from the Associated Press that appeared on November 25th, quote, government to phase out Sunday shopping by 2020. And we discover that, and this is from the article, Poland's lawmakers approved a law that will phase out Sunday shopping by the year 2020, despite criticism that it may eliminate thousands of jobs. It's like the minimum wage issue here in Ontario. Proposed by trade unions, just like the minimum wage issue here in Ontario, that want workers to spend more time with, the, with their families, that's BS. No, they don't want workers to spend more time with their families. They want to increase the labor monopoly. Every one of these arguments I've heard a million times over and over and over again when Ontario went through this. But I digress. Let me start that again. Proposed by trade unions that want workers to spend more time with their families, the bill got support from the ruling party that adheres to Catholic values. Go figure. <laughs> Critics say it would negatively affect Poland's economy, eliminating tens of thousands of jobs, and it would hurt supermarket chains. However, Sunday shopping will be allowed before major holidays like Christmas and Easter. Oh, there you go, Catholic holidays. <laughs> oh, how hypocritical and self-serving the left is. You know, people on the left live in abject terror. 
Small wonder that the younger generations are so afraid of everything, so sensitive, because they understand so little. And what little they think they do know, especially in history and politics, just ain't so. Hence, you have all the, the violent protests, the shouting down of those they cannot possibly even understand or counter, and it's utter fear of their own impotence. It's, it's sad when I see it. The only point in ever debating anyone on the left is for the benefit of a third party witnessing the debate. Most of the left realizes this, and that's why they like to avoid debates altogether. They don't want to see themselves in action because they look pretty sad even to themselves. In contrast to this leftist fear, in one of her interviews, Lindsay Shepard made it clear that she did not feel bullied by her inquisitors, who outnumbered her three to one. In fact, she said she felt perfectly in control because she knew she was right, even if she thought it was called left. (laughs) Now, you know, that power and that security of objectively knowing that you are right, it has to be experienced to be appreciated. And I've personally found myself in that very circumstance many times. And I know that I'm right by, the, by not only what I know, but by the reactions of those who disagree with me. When I appeared before the Ontario Human Rights Commission in defending a, a London landlord, everyone else in the room was a lefty. I'm the, I was the only guy on the right in there, and they were terrified of me. I can understand Robert's experience at the Board of Ed. They were all quite visibly uncomfortable around me, whereas I I felt perfectly comfortable around them, not threatened in the least. I mean, their every claim and argument was so easy to refute. I could not understand how such a rationality could have become so institutionalized in a supposedly free society. I mean, too stupid for words. And for anyone curious about what I'm talking about right now, my entire case and final argument to the commission is available online. And the things I already knew were deeply entrenched in the leftist world of Ontario are only now being vaguely discovered by a handful of people who found themselves to be direct victims of the emotional plague that grips the left. Just Google the term final argument along with my name, but as Robert Metz, not as Bob Metz. And you'll be sure to find a copy of my final argument to the Human Rights Commission. And you'll be able to to read the whole documented and sordid story and details about what our Human Rights Commissions are wasting their time and our tax dollars on. And if it doesn't sound an awful lot like what we're hearing in the news today, I don't know what else would. But the issue is not about human rights commissions or about free speech or about any of those other symptoms that we've been talking about. It's always about the polarized ideas and ideology that compete with one another. One cannot argue that freedom can be a value of both the left and right, for example, if you're using the same definition of freedom. They can't both be in favor of freedom. I keep hearing the argument, you know, freedom of speech isn't a left and right issue. It's beyond the left and right because both sides need it to express their points of view. I I, I hear that expressed in a lot of different ways. But it sure as hell is a left and right issue. And from the beginning of time till now, freedom and capitalism, of which freedom of speech is an inseparable part, sits squarely on the right of the political pole and not on the left. Mankind today, as always is simply on the road to discovering these polarities and truths. And when we do, and the political compass is repaired and is functioning as it should, 
Only then will we see mankind begin once again to move in the right direction. Which is exactly what we'll be doing again one week from now. Be sure to join us, and until then, hey, you know what to do. Be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Will you be out late, Master? Yes, uh, you might say that. May I have those, please? Uh, yes, I'm going to the Aleutians. Oh, that is near the South Pole. <laughs> the North Pole. Oh, well, one pole is like another. <laughs>